watchers in the fourth dimension. I'm all right, sir, he said without being asked. Jemima Bond, licensed to spill. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm JM. And I'm Julie. This episode, friend of the podcast JM Casey of the Chrononauts podcast joins myself and Julie as we take a small diversion into audio land with the season 8 adjacent big finish story, The Doll of Death. JM, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you. It's great to be here, guys. Before we dive into our discussion, I'm going to give us a little bit of information from behind the scenes on this story. This particular audio is from Big Finish's The Companion Chronicles range, which generally take the form of narrated audiobooks. Julie and I have done a couple of these before, I think Binary and The Library of Alexandria. This particular one was actually the very first time that Katie Manning reprised the role of Joe Grant since she left Doctor Who in 1973. Joining her as the secondary person is Jane Goddard as Mrs. Killebrew. Jane Goddard, incidentally, is married to Rob Shearman, who has written numerous Big Finish audios, as well as the TV episode Dalek from Series 1 in 2005. Writing this story, however, we have Mark Platt, whose association with Doctor Who goes all the way back to Season 26 of the classic era of the show, when he wrote Ghostlight. Since then, he's written a few Doctor Who novels and quite a large number of Big Finish audios, including fan-favourite Spare Parts, which is often touted to be one of the best audios of all time. In the director's seat, we have the fantastic Lisa Bowman, who Julie and I have previous experience of from her direction of Binary and Daughter of the Gods from the Early Adventures range. And finally, providing sound... We have David Darlington, who has been absolutely prolific in his work for Big Finish. I don't think Julie and I have covered anything that he's contributed to before, but I've met him once or twice. Lovely guy. And I think he's absolutely fantastic at what he does. Now, in terms of in-universe chronology, this story takes place between The Demons and Day of the Daleks, placing it right in between seasons eight and nine. It was originally recorded on the 23rd of May 2008 and was released on CD and I think at the time maybe even download as well in September 2008. So it's 13 years old at the time of recording. With that very small amount of behind the scenes information out of the way, we'll move into our discussion with episode one. And Julie, I know you're going to want to start by talking about the soundscape. I mean, it's Big Finish. We all know that the soundscape is just so on point with Big Finish. I was expecting a little bit more from the very beginning because, again, since they're so prolific, but I think that they did a good job of filling in what they needed to fill in and just leaving what needed to be silent, silent. Yeah, it was uh, minimal. Uh, I thought maybe there would be a little bit more music, perhaps, but it was a good soundscape. I really liked how it started. I thought the minimalistic music, as you point out, was still very, very ominous. And you get the dog barking kind of yeah. indicating what's coming later, even mm -hmm. though you don't know it at the time. Some nice tone setting there, I think. Absolutely. I think, though, for me, what was great is Joe sounded like Joe. Not only did she do a very good job of just stepping right into that character again, since this was her first time going back to Joe, I think the writers actually pretty really well understood Joe. Yeah, I agree. I think that they definitely brought across certain things that I think maybe only have been noticed about her character in retrospect. I mean, I don't know that people thought too much about 
at the time, what ideology does Joe have and how does she think about the world and stuff like that? I mean, I know that sort of started to come in later and you guys haven't gotten to that yet. So I don't really know uh, <laughs> what Julie, you thought about the beginning. I think that might have been a little weird to listen to. <laughs> yeah, I was like, who is this cliff person? What are we talking about? And why is all of this happening? But at the same time, I was just like, oh, cool. Something happened with Joe. It looks like she got married. Yay. Happy ending for Joe. So I kind of just ran with it. Yeah, that's cool. Sometimes that's what you have to do, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time, I think that Big Finish does sort of do these companion chronicles in the format of, well, this is somebody who's a little bit older telling a story that happened to them when they were with the doctor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And when we decided to do this one, Julie, I didn't quite think about that there might almost be a little bit of a spoiler about how That's Joe okay. might leave the show. But, you know, there's still plenty more to come with her in the main show. Also, you know, it's however many years old, I'm gonna get spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> Just going back to Katie Manning managing to sound exactly like Joe. She left the show in, as I said, 73. This was 35 years later in 2008. And I think it's incredible how she still sounds like Joe. And for Big Finish, JM, I think you're probably aware of this. Julie, you're probably not. She also occasionally plays a character called Iris Wildtime. And I believe, if I recall correctly, there's even one story where she plays both roles. And the way she switches between the two voices is incredible. I also got to say that her John Pertwee impression is really good. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, not, not obviously the vocal register, but just the tonal quality and the way she had his mannerisms down. Yeah. I was actually more impressed with that almost than her sounding like Joe. There's a, like a slight husky quality to Pertwee's voice that she captures really well. Yeah. But she really gets the cadence and a little bit less so on the Brigadier, but still enough where just you can distinctly tell which one's the Brigadier, which one's the Doctor. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, she, she had a good handle on both of their mannerisms, I think. Mm -hmm. I love the way the Brigadier was surprised by something and he goes, what? <laughs> and she just she did that so well. Honestly, she did such a good job at disguising her voice, particularly for the Brigadier. I wasn't sure whether it was her or whether it was Jane Goddard voicing the Brig. Mm -hmm. I really struggled to distinguish that with that particular voice. I can't say that I know what Jane Goddard normally sounds like. I mean, I'm sure I've heard her in other audios, but I didn't really think that she necessarily stood out in this one very much. So yeah, I could tell it was Katie Manning, definitely. Yep. And unfortunately, she didn't do much for Benton. I'll kind of be a little bit sad about that. Uh, but just the fact that we got Benton, even though it was, you know, Benton's horrible, no good, very bad day. <laughs> he was, always has those. It's like really every does. day on the job for Sergeant Benton. Uh, and of course, Yates was, again, off doing something else, eating biscuits. And I'm like, poor Benton. And Yates just doesn't do any work. Yeah, there was a line about that, that I thought sounded a little risque about how she imagines, it might have been in episode two, but she imagines Yates dunking his ginger biscuits into his tea. And she says something like, that could be my tea that they're getting dunked into. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't, okay. Is that supposed to be a double entendre? A little bit weird, some sexuality around tea, but cool, cool, cool. <laughs> Why not? It's the British way. It's definitely the British way. All right, so are we good to talk about plot? Yes, let's go. All right. I love the setup. I tend to love the setup. And we have this obnoxious noise. I don't know why they love obnoxious noises, but they do. And the doctor goes, finds this professor, and 
I love how he just barges in and then Joe is like, you know, doctor, you just need to like tone it down and and calm down a little bit. So I think they've got that part of the dynamic down really well, because as I like to say, this doctor is a dick, but through Joe's eyes, he's less of one. What I found really, really funny about it was they go to what's referred to in story as the National Museum in Bloomsbury, which is the British Museum, which is the museum where we put all of our plundered stuff from our empire days. And effectively, the professor has stolen something from Mrs. K and Hannah and has it in his office in the museum of all the shit we've stolen. In the Department of Anomalous Artifacts. Yeah, I want to work there. How do I get a job there? (laughs) Ah, me too. Yeah, it is very telling that they've done that. And I love the little hints of things that they give Joe just having this feeling that This is something that she's heard of before. And then seeing herself lying on the floor. Oh, good vibes. I love those type of things. She has premonitions, right? She wakes up and she has this Miss Killigrew's name in her head, right? And Mm -hmm. uh, that's definitely, that was a little eerie. I mean, the whole time, uh, I don't know if we want to reveal yet what the thing is. (laughs) Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. The world where time runs backwards. I always had a little bit of trouble envisaging that i mean that's been used in a lot of science fiction stories before and it always gives me a little trouble because it's just so hard to imagine how it works <laughs> and the rules so to speak so i mean i think i still had a little trouble with it this time around but i enjoyed it nonetheless especially you know like the bullets flying into the gun and stuff like that it's so weird right it's a weird yeah. image and uh you know the doctors taking the sandwiches before they could be unmade kind of thing Yeah, I had two thoughts on that. One, it's just such an alien concept to how we perceive everything that I think, JM, to your point, it's fairly natural to struggle to conceptualize it. And then secondly, it almost reminded me of the Red Dwarf episode backwards as well. Yeah, I just thought of that now Mm -hmm. when I was talking about it, because before I was thinking of a lot of literary examples, like even Time's Arrow from Martin Amos and stuff like that, where the Nazi doctor is living his life backwards. As I'll bring in the music video that this reminds me of, and that's the return to innocence, where things start to run backwards. Mm. Oh, I didn't know about that. Interesting. Before we found out that it was time running backwards and we encounter those ghostly dolls that Professor Sanders saw and then Joe also sees them, they speak backwards and and obviously we find out that it's time stuff. But at first I was like, ooh, this is very satanic. Are we going to go in like a satanic possessed doll? Is that going to be this? And sadly not. (laughs) Yes. Was it just me though or did it sound like the doll was saying mum? Or mum or something like that? Mum, mum, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very creepy. <laughs> Very creepy. And even if it wasn't like, I mean, technically, one of the dolls possessed people. I guess the doll itself wasn't possessed. But I still really liked how all the ghost visuals were in my head, especially when we get into part two, because there's the epic ghost that's in that one, in my opinion. But I do find these visuals interesting because not only are they going backwards, but they have like a blue tinge to them because they're like ghosts. And I thought that was really kind of an interesting way of doing it as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think just, Julie, to that point, because this is more of a narrated audiobook, or I think they... What do they call it? They call it an enhanced audiobook. Mm-hmm. They can kind of do a lot more descriptive stuff than they can in a full cast audio drama without it seeming kind of forced. 
So that really helps us kind of visualize everything that's going on. And to your point, it's just very, very effective. Yeah, I mean, I think ideally those kind of productions that they do can be really good for that reason. I think that some people don't like them because they don't like the audiobook format, which is kind of strange considering how many people listen to audiobooks now. Maybe they just don't like the half and half aspect of it. I don't know. It's hard to figure out what people think sometimes, but I like the format. I think that it gives a lot of a chance for characters like the, well, this specific range is focusing on the companions. And it gives them a lot of opportunity to sort of voice their thoughts, which we don't normally get to see, right? Yeah. We don't normally get to see how they really think. I mean, obviously, sort of glean that from dialogue normally. And I think that it's pretty uh, interesting approach because a lot of us think about the kind of stuff that's not on television, right? We think about, well, these people are having adventures together all the time and we're only really seeing a small part of it. And so it's nice to get a, a more internal glimpse, I think. Yeah, for sure. And there are a couple of things, like little bits of information about Joe that we gleaned from that. Particularly, she's talking about being sent to spy school at the beginning. <laughs> well, that's what the doctor calls it. Yeah. Yeah, the training exercises. But there's a part <laughs> when she mentions that she's 18, which is younger than I thought she was meant to be. I kind of assumed Me that she was too. meant to be 22, 23-ish. Yeah. So that surprised me. She also mentioned her parents at one point. Yeah, I think she also mentioned that she really doesn't like Fridays because Fridays are always when the alien. No, it was the Brigadier who didn't like Fridays because that's when the aliens always came and tried to take over. And I really just like those little things here and there of just how much can we bother the Brigadier? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought it was cool when she was talking to Sergeant Benton as well. And she's saying, oh, I just want to prove that I'm independent and I can do things. And Sergeant Benton said, well, if the only way to make the Brigadier happy is just to do what he says and to obey his orders. And she sort of says, well, that's not really good enough for me. <laughs> I mean, Benton is unfortunately in that position because yeah, he yeah. is not of the right class. And I will forever wax poetic about how stupid that is. But <laughs> yeah, that's definitely where his mindset comes from. Yeah, but I do love how when she's basically says, well, I'm going to go off anyway, his reaction is, well, I better go with you. I love Benton. <laughs> He's difficult not to love. Any raider, he uh, sent a message to the brigadier as well. They weren't really supposed to be going on this excursion. And the brigadier said, I'm not supporting any more private work or investigations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's Benton radioing and saying, hey, we're at this weird toy <laughs> shop and some weird stuff is happening. Can you come help us? <laughs> I love that whole sequence because she's trying to explain like that explosion and she's like violent events can go in all directions. They mentioned that Benton was just really confused about it. And I was like, I can visualize Benton's confused face yeah. <laughs> based on what I've been able to see. So I like being able to tie it in that way as well. And I'm like, yep, that is definitely something Benton is confused a lot. Yeah. And he will continue to be so <laughs> for a little bit longer. Perfect. Ugh. At least another season. I think he starts to get the hang of it after that, but yeah. I don't know, man. I can't wait till you guys get to the Time Monster and the Three Doctors. Well, I think the Three Doctors is when he starts figuring everything out. I guess you're right. Anyway, you'll see. Yeah. So let's talk about Mrs. Killebrew and Hannah the doll. Yeah. Ugh. Oh, dear. That voice. Oh, <laughs> such a good, creepy little doll, little girl voice. And it just, ah. Yeah, it's a really childish voice. And she's kind of like, seemed like a childish person almost. Yeah, she seems so childish because it's like, oh, an observer and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you sound just like a whiny person who's like, oh, no, I can't get home. It just, I don't know. I'm going to creep into episode two here a little. Yep, that's fine. We've already kind of been doing that. 
Yeah. I struggled to understand. So it felt like she had permission to come and witness what was going on in our world, our planet Earth. Then yes. she lost the tablet or the professor stole the tablet. She missed her window to get back. So they sent the dogs after her, but she also yeah. doesn't want to go back. So I think, this is what I think. I think she was sent to observe and she was supposed to be there for a specific period of time. But then she also mentioned that she was trying to observe the doctor. And I don't think that was part of the original plan. I think mm. she was there to originally just observe Earth in the reverse. And then she was like, oh, but the doctor is here. And this is like a personal mission. That's the way I took yeah. it. So she got a little fixated. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. There were certain parts of a story, and I think this does tend to happen sometimes with this format of this range, for certain parts of a story that are a little bit vague, mm -hmm. uh, because it's just focused so much on the characters, which is nice to see. But on the other hand, sometimes it just seems like there are certain areas of the plot that are not as fleshed out as they could be. And I definitely got the feeling that she did something wrong, yeah. but I don't really know what it was. I think it was more than just losing the tablet and the fact that she was so interested in the doctor how did they know that how did they figure that out the authorities wherever they were i don't know that the authorities figured out that she was fixated on the doctor i just think the authorities were like hey you were only supposed to be there for like three days and you've been out there for 40 days you need to get back that's what i think happened but yeah oh, you're probably right i think jm to your point though the Companion Chronicles can be a little vague in their storytelling because it's being told a lot of the time from memory. Right. And I can barely remember what I did last week, let alone 30 odd years ago. <laughs> and it's told from the perspective of the Companion. So the Companion doesn't necessarily know everything about the antagonist. Right. Also true. That is definitely a good point. I remember one, I think, that had Victoria in it, and it almost felt like it was the greatest hits of her time in the Trotten <laughs> era. Like, it literally just felt like she was making it up, but she was basing it on everything that happened. And so, I mean, there's a little bit of cool flexibility with the format in that way. I don't necessarily mind that kind of thing. I mean, I like more sort of experimental storytelling, so it works for me. And that's probably a good explanation for why the story is a little bit vague, too, is because Joe only knows so much. Although Hannah was in her head for a while. Yeah, yeah she was in Joe's head, but Joe didn't necessarily get into Hannah's head. Right. Yeah. I think it plays a little into the unreliable narrator concept. Mm -hmm. Not fully, but it gives you like a little bit of a hint of this person's memory might be fading just a bit. Yeah. Anyway. yeah. One of the things I loved about this as well was the fact that when she gets into the reverse timeline, I guess we'll call it, she has the Brigadier and Benton with her, but not the Doctor and not Yates. And I thought that was refreshing because so often in the show, the Brigadier gets sidelined and he's outside of the bubble and you just see him at a desk complaining and trying to do things there. Yeah. And this time we we're like, no, the Brigadier got in on the action and that was exciting to me. But if it had been Benton, you would probably have been cool with that too, right? <laughs> I mean, poor Benton was just hurt. And I was just like, I just want to be able to like take him home, give him first aid. Yeah. Poor guy. But yeah, it just the fact that it was them instead of the doctor that was with her the whole time just was really nice. And Benton saves Joe. Mm -hmm. He loses the dogs by throwing the doll's arm for them to go and chase. And then he jumps in the way of those bullets. And then later he gets his, I assume, his shoe gnawed on by the dogs as he's trying to kick them away when they're on the bus. Yeah. He's very, very gallant here. He is very, very gallant. I thought you would be enjoying that, Julie. 
I, of course, was enjoying it. And then the <laughs> fact that at the end of the story, she's like, oh, I'm going to have a date with Yates. I'm like, how dare you? <laughs> yeah, because they don't nearly have as much interaction as Benton. Do you think she was bearding for him at that date? Oh. Do you think it was an actual date? Fair. That's totally fair, especially because like she always had more positive things to say about Benton. Most of the time when she's talking about Yates, she's just like, "Ugh, he gets to go and like be drinking his tea and all this other stuff while I'm stuck here doing this. And every time she's talking about Benton, she's like, Benton's so sweet. And oh, I need to save Benton. And Benton is, you know, saving my life. So I could see it. Here we go. I actually wrote <laughs> it down. The line about the tea, dunking ginger biscuits in his own tea when it should have been in mine. I thought that was sexually charged. I think she doesn't quite realise the situation here that <laughs> Yates isn't really interested in her. I can't decide whether it's just sort of fan wisdom that says that, because I can't really remember any scenes on the show where they really spend a lot of time together or, or anything where that indicates they have that kind of chemistry. Yeah. Uh, her and Yates, I mean. Yeah. So it seemed to me like something fans sort of latched onto, but I don't really know why. I don't know, and it disappoints <laughs> me every time. As we mentioned when we did Terror of the Autons, it was an idea that Barry Letts had that Yates could potentially oh, right. be a romantic interest. But again, there's just zero chemistry there. Yeah. Okay, I remember you mentioning that, and I might have heard that before, but it didn't seem to go anywhere. So mm -mm. Nope. that's obviously not the sort of thing you remember because you didn't really see it on screen. So Exactly. All right. We get to the doctor being able to step into this reverse timeline. And I love that scene, especially because you have the doctor doing the thing with the dogs. And then Joe is like, oh, I have this great idea. And then Joe proceeds to do a very stupid idea. And she gets them all into trouble. And first off, there's a great line, which was a look that could have fried bacon. Yes. Love I that, that line. But the doctor gets really, really upset at Joe and needs to get talked down. And then eventually he's like, you know what, Joe, you didn't do what you should have done, but I understand why you did it. And he wasn't upset anymore. And that was refreshing because he doesn't do that often in the show. Yeah, I yeah. think he just had a moment of tension there or like... I mean, the way they did it in the story is like he you could tell that he wanted to really snap at her, but it didn't really go that far. And it was just sort of, yes, of course yeah. you thought you were doing the right thing. And that's it. Like, that's so. So again, refreshing and different than what the TV show does, because in the TV show, he just proceeds to tell her how stupid she is. Does he really do that that much after her introduction, though? I don't know. I guess so. You guys have been watching it. <laughs> For a while now, so I, I... He does it a fair amount, I think, through season eight. <laughs> yeah. And I think it gets He's better after better. that, but yeah. It's getting better. Julie, I want to go back to you talking about the Doctor's reintroduction, because the way that scene was handled, I visualized it so clearly. I could see in my mind that velvet mm -hmm. sleeve and his hand reaching through the aperture and just grabbing the device and then oh, him yeah. stepping through it. It was very, very visual without actually having a picture. I thought that was just so cool. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I can definitely imagine him sort of appearing at the right moment there, which is pretty much what he did. I had actually started to wonder, oh, when is he going to pop up? <laughs> and there he was. Another Doctor moment I really enjoyed in this is when he starts pushing Hannah on her arrangement with Mrs. K and the ethics of it. Yeah. 
she's possessing this poor woman and is really running her into the ground. And we mentioned it already, but Hannah just comes across as bratty through all of it when she doesn't get her way. When the doctor refuses an interview, she basically says, well, you claim to rally against the system. You've just become a part of it. And she just throws everything she can at him because he snubbed her. It's very childish. She specifically said, just another patronizing male. Yeah. And I'm like, well... I may have said something pretty much along those lines before. So to a certain degree, Hannah, I can't disagree with you, (laughs) but you're also being bratty. Yeah. She wasn't wrong. No. I mean, she wasn't wrong, but she flies into it after he's refused the interview. Uh, Yeah. It comes Mm -hmm. across as, I've been snubbed, so I'm going to speak my mind rather than being polite. And it very much plays into that kind of narrative of the third doctor being the so-called establishment doctor. Yeah, she even comments on that. I think that was definitely, uh, again, a fan wisdom kind of comment. I mean, I never, I, I get what people are saying when they say that, but I'm not sure I'm totally on board with him being the so-called establishment doctor. I mean, obviously he's working for a unit, so to a certain extent, yes, he is. It's really Paul Cornell in the early 90s. He wrote a fanzine article that talked about the third doctor, and I think he actually referred to him as the Tory doctor. Oh, I don't see that. I think that maybe that's the way John Pertwee was, for all I know. I really don't. And maybe that sort of projects sometimes in the way he portrays the Doctor, but I don't think that's the way he was. I would agree with you. I think there are elements there. The third Doctor is basically stuck on Earth and forced to some extent to ingratiate himself with the establishment in order to get what he needs to try and fix the TARDIS and to make life a little easier. He's never happy about it. He's not. Never. Going back to what we were saying when we did Colony in Space, you see once he's no longer on Earth, he's immediately happier. Yeah. Julie, I know that you know at some point he gets access to the TARDIS again. I mean, that's kind of obvious, right? Yeah. (laughs) But once that happens, you know, even when he is on Earth again, he seems like he's in a better mood because he knows he can just leave if he wants to. I mean, there's still unit stories in season 10 and 11, but he's cool. You know, he's chill. Uh, grumpy. I think it's the case for everyone. Even if there's somewhere you like being, if you're told you can't leave there, you're going to get a little agitated, no matter how much you like the place. I do. I get very upset. I hate being powerless and like being somewhere and having to depend on somebody to like take me home or something. I can't stand it. So mm. even if you're on a <laughs> tropical island, knowing that you can't leave, that's going to rub you up the wrong way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We start moving forward where they're like, okay, now we need to figure out how to get back. We have to get back to the tablet. How do we do that? Well, we need to go back to where it was fixed. And what I love is Joe is like, this is the week with two Fridays. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, poor Joe. Totally just over it. I feel like that's about Mondays sometimes. (laughs) I feel like I have a week of Mondays. Yeah, but the aliens always invade on Fridays. That's why it's a bad day. Exactly. The Brigadier hates it because Joe has to miss her training exercise. Fridays are just no good. Saturdays are a much better day. But we're getting to my my favorite part, guys. So we've waited through the night or through the morning, whichever direction we're going. I know your favorite part. Sorry. Keep going. (laughs) We get back to the museum and then this, uh, what was, what was her name? Uh, Mrs. K. Killiper. Yeah, Mrs. K. Brings in a giant ghost teddy bear yeah. <laughs> to fight the dogs, and it is glorious. And I so just... What was the deal with the teddy bear? 
it was in her doll hospital. So I guess they just thought we've got to get something that's big and strong to fend off the dogs. So she just <laughs> brings something ridiculous. I mean, I'm not sure it necessarily makes the most sense narratively, but it's such a <laughs> glorious image that can okay. easily be forgiven. It was mentioned earlier. And I wasn't sure if I missed something about the teddy bear because I couldn't really see the significance of that and thought like, was it supposed to be a sort of a fan of reference to another story or something like that with the teddy bears? I think it's just talking about like, I'm imagining an eight foot stuffed teddy bear that's oh, lumbering yeah. around and then fighting off dogs. That is the image that I got in my head. That is a pretty cool image. I can't <laughs> deny it. I think Julie's right. It's just there to put that pretty cool and ridiculous image in yeah. your head. So when that professor said he had actually seen the teddy bear already, he had a premonition of that because he was seeing the ghosts from the future? Yes, because it and all loops around. Mm-hmm. Right. He said he saw a bunch of dolls and he saw a teddy bear. And Joe somehow already knew about the dolls, even though she hadn't actually been hanging out in his office yet. She just had a feeling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the kind of thing 10 years ago or 20 years ago, that would have bugged the crap out of me. <laughs> I would have said how much that doesn't make sense, but I don't know. I'm way more into supernatural stuff now, so I can just kind of accept it and be like, yeah, okay. Some kind <laughs> of latent psychic ability. We can headcanon it with that. Yeah. So this ending is a little difficult to follow exactly what was going on because well, I was good with most of it. So you have Hannah who's trying to get to the tablet through Joe and Joe is saying no. And she eventually pushes Hannah out, which, okay, I totally get. And I love that it shows that Joe is that strong to be able to push this foreign yeah. entity out of herself, which I think is great. Where I get confused is where in the world the brigadier came from. He just all of a sudden randomly shows up. I thought he had been like left behind at some point. He's just there when he needs to be kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. And I also don't know. Um, so it seemed like at first Hannah wanted to stay. She didn't want to leave and she wanted to possess Joe permanently. Yep. And yeah. then she changed her mind. So I, again, like I'm a little I, I'm unclear about her motivations or what she was trying to do exactly besides study the doctor. And that's where I started to struggle as well. It just felt like a very untidy and almost rushed resolution that didn't entirely make sense from a narrative perspective. I think, I mean, I've had a couple of issues with some of these releases. I mean, I generally like... So, I mean, we didn't really go into my background with Big Finish, but I haven't listened to a lot of the recent stuff. I've kind of fallen off in recent years, but... I think I heard my first Big Finish release in 2000 or something like that. So as a result of that, I've heard a lot of them and a lot of Mark Platt ones, and I generally like his writing, but I just didn't really feel that this one was entirely satisfying in terms of plot construction. Yeah, I feel the same way. I think I love a lot of the scenes. I love a lot of the descriptions. I love how Joe comes across. It's really just the plot line that struggles a little bit. And as I said, part of that comes down to the fact that for us to conceptualize this parallel Earth where time runs differently, yet also runs alongside ours, is really, really difficult to visualize. That, I think, yeah. is part of it. It gives us a lot of cool imagery, like the Brigadier seeing himself in the mm -hmm. shop, and then we see it from the other perspective once it switches into the second episode. And you need a window in order for that to even be possible. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting because normally in these stories, it's either all backward or all forward, right? We don't see the two really interacting. And here they actually sort of interact 
And not only is it a hard thing to visualize, but I think it's actually a very hard thing to write. I think so, because it's running forwards up until the point of the explosion implosion at the store or doll hospital or whatever it is. And then from our perspective, we're in the backwards timeline from there until we get to the very end and get back to normality. Yeah. And it actually helps them being in the backward timeline because they can do things they wouldn't normally be able to do because they can go into tomorrow, which is actually yesterday. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of mirroring, you know, things we kind of saw hints of we then see come to fruition in the second part. But again, it just feels a little untidy, almost as if maybe Mark Platt had the same difficulty conceptualizing it as we do. Yeah, I think that's kind of inevitable. I mean, like I was saying before, there are a lot of literary precedents for that kind of concept. And even then, I still have trouble. And I don't know. I mean, there are times when I feel like that kind of concept is better, not as a plot thing, but more as a way to examine things and examine characters. But like showing things in reverse, it's very strange. There are a few stories by authors that I really like that have played with this concept before. And they're always stories that make me feel a little bit weird. Like they're not my favorites. You know, I just I have trouble with them as <laughs> everything is going backwards. And yet the people are thinking the way they would normally think. Everything seems normal, but it's not right. It's backwards. And I almost wonder whether this was an attempt to stay one step ahead of what Doctor Who was doing on TV. I mean, this came out in 2008. So this was probably recorded roughly a year after Blink came out. Okay. So you're starting to see on TV, Moffat was starting to do his, as he puts it, wibbly wobbly, timey wimey phrase <laughs> I still hate. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And yet you use it. I do, because it's <laughs> actually a good way of describing it, even if it does kind of set my teeth on edge a little. <laughs> I think the reason it sets my teeth on edge is that it can sort of explain any away with anything at all, right? Exactly. It's a hand wavy thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I think they were trying to kind of do something a bit more advanced than the TV show had done, knowing that the TV show would eventually go there to some extent. I can see that. I can see that. Definitely. Julie, before we wrap up, one thing you mentioned that I do want to focus on a little bit is Joe being given a strength of will as well as agency in this. She pushes her way out of Hannah's possession, and then the doctor gives her the tablet to make the final decision on what to do. Oh, it's beautiful and wonderful. And I really hope that we can see a little bit of that more with Joe through season nine, 10, however long she has left. Mm -hmm. Because I think this past season with Joe, it really went downhill and she really had nothing to do. So I'm really hoping that it does get better. You know, it's really been fascinating listening to you guys do the podcast because, I mean, I like this era of the show, but none of the, you know, more negative comments that you guys have about it are wrong. And I think that it's really interesting that the show is at this time, you can tell that on some level it's trying to be progressive and it's trying to be like something sort of new and with the times, but it's having a little trouble, maybe. And to me, that's really interesting. It's in retrospect, so many years later, I don't really, I can't really see it as a bad thing, almost. Maybe if I was watching at the time, I would have thought differently. I would have thought, oh, I wish they gave Joe more to do. I wish this and that. And the thing is, is like, even though we have what we can quote unquote say is a negative thing to say, we still rate everything really high because regardless of some of these things, it's well made compared to some of the some of those really bad serials that we got in the first and second Doctor eras. And it's more consistent. So it's not something where we're saying, oh, the third Doctor is terrible. Well, our numbers say otherwise. 
It's just that because it's gotten to this point where, okay, there's less for us to say from a plot perspective. So we're going to delve into the characterization and that's where all the negativity comes in. And if you think backwards, I think we were pretty harsh on the first Doctor right at the beginning when he was about to brain someone with a rock. We were pretty harsh on Victoria at times. We were pretty harsh on Dodo. But I think one of the interesting things about this era was you look at the behind the scenes team, you know, you had Barry Letts, who was a total hippie into Buddhism and and all these kind of Eastern religions and alternative ways of thinking. And then you had Malcolm Hulk as one of the main writers who was an avowed communist. And then you had his best friend, Terence Dix, who was an imperialist. He genuinely believed that the British Empire was one of the best things that ever happened to the world. So you have three very, very different worldviews that kind of clash on screen and give this really interesting dynamic. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that it really says something that those guys all seem to get along, even though they might have thought differently about things. And I wish it was more like that in real life, like now, you know? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, we might have different viewpoints, but we can still find commonality, which is definitely not the way the world has gone these days. And I think that the sort of hippiness of Barry Letts and the sort of, I mean, I don't know how much Malcolm Hulk actually influenced the show, but I mean, he certainly wrote some scripts and they have their problems too, but they're definitely trying to be a bit more leftist sort of, I guess. And I think that the contrast between like Terrence Dix and his, you you almost imagine he's the guy that's like, oh, we should make this really militaristic. We should have soldiers with guns. It would be really cool. And then you have Barry Letts being like, yeah, and we should have magic crystals and we should have... Uh, Sorry, the magic crystals are coming later, but I think it's really cool. I think it's one of the most fascinating eras in the show because of that. Yeah, absolutely. For all of that. And interestingly, I think Malcolm Hulk and Terrence Dix were actually flatmates at one point. They lived together. Oh, yeah. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that house with the communist and the imperialist. Fascinating. (laughs) But apparently they got on really well. Anyway, we kind of digress, but I like the way they took Joe here to get us back on track. And it's such a shame that it ends with Mike taking Joe out to dinner. (sighs) Yeah, because he's not even in the story. Yeah. Yeah, it bothers me. I have already been given some hints as to things that might happen with Yates in the future anyway. I blame Tumblr on that one. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) See, I actually really like what they did with that, but I don't necessarily like Yates as a, you know, that whole business, that that whole thing with Joe and all that. Yeah, I don't know all of the ins and outs of everything. I just have heard hints, so I'm trying not to get too spoiled on it. But yeah, I was sitting here, I was like, we really could have gotten through this entire story without mentioning Yates at all. We could have. For sure. He didn't I don't think that he does anything. <laughs> It's almost as if to say, well, Yates has been an integral part of the so-called unit family, so we at least need to pay him some lip service here, which I don't think we needed to do. I think it goes back to what I said earlier. I think it's just that that fan thing that people have where they think that that was a thing, even if it didn't really manifest on screen. I mean, I remember, I can't remember which one it was, but it was one of the Third Doctor novels. And it went a little further with all that. And at the time, I was like, yeah, that's fine, I guess. We never saw any of that, but whatever. I never necessarily thought Benton was a better fit. But I mean, I can see that. You know, I can see that because they do seem to have more chemistry almost. So it's not surprising, really. So on that note, should we go ahead and rate this thing? Okay. Yes. 
since that seemed to be a little bit of a surprise to you, Julie, I will go first. <laughs> I think this story had some good ideas. We spent a lot of time in this discussion talking about the difficulty in kind of conceptualizing the two different time flows existing alongside each other. But I think Mark Platt, Lisa Berman and, and the cast did as good a job as they could with what's clearly a very, very difficult concept for us to handle. On top of that, there were some wonderful creepy moments, anything with the dolls, the mama, 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 very, very creepy. The dogs seem to have a genuine sense of menace and Julie mentioned the teddy bear. <laughs> <laughs> what a fantastic image. As we did mention, though, the ending seems kind of rushed. There are elements that seem like they weren't fully formed. Hannah's ultimate decision, was she going to try and steal Joe's body? Was she going to leave? That was a little muddled. So the story has some good things going for it. It's a long way from perfect. And I think I'm going to give it six and a half ginger biscuits out of 10. Nice. JM, do you want to go next? Sure. I think a lot of what Anthony just said, I can definitely agree with. I thought there were some really nice character bits. I enjoyed the production from an actual production standpoint. Katie Manning was very good. I was especially impressed with her impressions of her male co-stars. <laughs> but as Joe, she was also very good. And I have listened to a few things with her, and I do occasionally think that she is a little bit too squeaky as Joe because she's kind of an older person trying to imitate a very young person and doesn't always work for me. But I think in this one, I didn't really have that kind of problem with it. I didn't actually realize this was her first audio. I missed that somehow, I guess, or I didn't know. Sorry to interrupt, Jam. It wasn't her first audio period, but it was her first audio as Joe. Right. That's the important thing. Her first audio as Joe. And I liked a lot of the ideas in the story. I liked the images. But I, too, have problems with the whole backwards time flowing thing. I have trouble imagining how it really works and especially interacting with time that's flowing in the other direction. I think they did a pretty good job of that, maybe as best as they could. But it was still vague to me. And it just seemed sometimes like the rules were sort of haphazard, like what people could see and what they couldn't see and why they had premonitions and why they didn't. It just seemed like the premonitions were there because the story needed them. And they also added atmosphere. But that also goes back to something that I said before, where that kind of thing doesn't really bug me the way that it used to. I would have been a lot more bothered by that in the past. I've kind of come to accept a lot more weird and supernatural things in fiction because of a lot of the things that I read and I like it. And the Hannah antagonist was kind of interesting. She was very bratty, but I kind of liked that. It was kind of a fun, weird personality for a Doctor Who villain to have, I guess. But even so, I can't really say that I loved this. It did have some vagaries about it in plot and structure. And I did think about this before you even said it, Anthony, but I too will give this 6.5 dolls and dogs out of 10. And last, but very much not least, Julie. All right. I think I might have enjoyed this a little bit more than you guys. Again, Katie Manning was so good in this. And I loved that. The soundscape, per usual, big finish, nails it. And I really like some of the script and what words were chosen, the phrases, the really funny lines that were thrown in there. And... Overall, just I loved those things. I loved not having the doctor in it a ton. I liked having the brigadier and Benton in it more. And okay, yeah, some of the plot was a little iffy and things of that nature, but I enjoyed it. So that means it's going to be rated a little higher for me. So I'm going to give it 
seven and a half giant killer teddy bears out of ten. Yeah. <laughs> and so, Julie, cool. I know this is the fourth big finish you've done for this show, and I know you've done a couple of others when you've been a guest on Earth Station Who? When you look at the ones you've done, how does this compare? I mean, I'm not going to ask that question to JM, and I'm not going to answer it myself because we've heard so much big finish, but I know yours, your experience is a lot more limited. Yeah, it's not my favorite, but it's not my least favorite. I don't think I enjoyed binary quite as much. I don't know if the numbers quite prove that because I don't remember what I rated it. But I think there was a lot more to this than binary. So I rather enjoyed that. Does binary have Caroline John narrating? It does. Oh, I got to listen to that. I haven't listened to those episodes because the only one that you guys did that I've actually listened to was the Library of Alexandria's. And don't get me wrong. I liked binary, but it's just... I actually thought there was a lot more action and stuff going on over here, and I loved Katie Manning. Yeah, I think we would probably agree that the best one we've done has been Daughter of the Gods. Oh, hands down. Absolutely. I definitely need to listen to that. Yeah, really, really enjoyable. All right. Well, that brings us pretty much to the end of our discussion. So we are going to wrap it up now. We've been talking for about an hour. I don't know how that will shake out in the edit. But JM, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us this evening as we record this. I really enjoyed it. If you haven't checked out Chrononauts, uh, do you, you want to give a little plug for that and tell the audience what it's about? Sure. Me and a friend, uh, we do a science fiction literature history podcast, and it's called Chrononauts. You can find us on Blogspot, but you can also find us on anchor.fm at anchor.fm slash chrononauts. And that's where you'll find all our episodes. We're sort of hanging around doing 19th century works mostly, but we've been sneaking a few different things in from the last century, some very early American pulp science fiction works, but we essentially have been covering a lot of the foundational works of the genre. And we're a literature podcast, so we don't really talk that much about television and movies, but we also do bonus episodes every now and then where we bring a little bit of that stuff up. And I'm not fully up to date on the show, but it's really, really good. So do go out and check it out if you have any interest in literature and particularly science fiction in literature. I realize that's not necessarily everyone's cup of tea, but very, very yes. well put together. Podcast. We do have some uh, changes coming in. So in January, we're going to be changing the format just a tad bit and bringing in another host. So it's going to be quite interesting. Awesome. Well, thank you very much to everyone out there for listening. Julie and I will be back with Riley and Don next episode when we'll be doing our season eight retrospective. But in the meantime, as always, thank you for listening in and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Julie Philippek, J.M. Casey, and myself, Anthony Williams. This bonus episode, I Blame Tumblr, was originally recorded on Thursday the 11th of November 2021. If this is your first time listening in, all of our previous episodes are available through your favorite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at @watchers4d, and you can also email us at watchers4d at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, make sure you always carry around a giant teddy bear. You never know when you might need it to help you fight off vicious dogs from another time stream.